Hi, everybody. Josh here. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to drop in and plug something that's been going on for a while, but that might be especially handy for these days of self-imposed isolation and social distancing. If you find yourself getting a little stir-crazy, wanting to sling some dice with fellow Earth Dawn fans, there's a West Marches-style Earth Dawn game based out of the FASA Games forums. This is a campaign style that allows for easy drop-in, almost a pick-up-and-play style, with no long-term commitment and flexible scheduling. The games are run online, so you can stay inside and you don't even need to put on pants. There are more details at the website. Go to fasagames.com, go to the forums, in the Earth Dawn section, look under Online Play for West Marches 2. I'll also drop a link into the show notes. With that out of the way, let's dive into the next episode. Everyone, welcome back to the Earth on Survival Guide, a podcast for novices, wardens, masters, travelers, and everybody out there who actually wants to listen to us in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> I am, of course, Dan. With me is, of course, Josh. Hello. Before we get into anything else, real quick, we've got one email to get to a little bit later on. We will be, on this podcast today. We'll be talking about all things logistical, civilizational, powerful, and foreseeable. But Josh has a wonderful little announcement to make first. But before that happens, get a hold of us if you want to at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. Josh, the floor is yours, because you've been waiting to, to say something about this for a long time. Well, it's not the big, big secret. This is not the, Sorry. This is not the big, big secret, but this is still so, cool regardless. We'll burst that bubble, but give you we'll, another bubble. We'll, to, we'll, get yeah. to, we'll get to that one eventually. So as of our recording of this, I have finished up the preliminary pre-art layout for the Iopos source book. I finished that up this past weekend. Woohoo! And at our development team meeting last night, we kind of hashed out some final details and put some things together to prepare the Kickstarter campaign for said book. Now, at the time that this episode releases, that campaign should have launched. Uh, so if you were not already following me or FASA Games on our various social media outlets, uh, the Earth Dawn Guild on Facebook, I mean, we'll be talking about this in a bunch of places. But if oh, yeah. you are not aware, go to Kickstarter, search for Earth Dawn. And get out from under that rock you've been living under. And and you will be able to support the campaign for Iopos uh, Lair of Deceit is the subtitle that that we have chosen for that book. In addition to being able to get copies of the uh, book, both in print and PDF, um, we've got, much like in our previous campaign for Mystic Paths, basically higher tiers that are bundles of books. If you are just getting back in and have not had a chance to acquire stuff yet, this is a great time to do it because we do offer sort of discount rates off of what you would get, even ordering it directly through our store. And yeah, the book is all done. You know, the book is written and uh, the text is basically locked down at this point now it's just a matter of getting um art filled and whatnot and this campaign will help pay artists to do that and pay yes. for the physical production of the book because our printer who is based in the u.s also prints newspapers and so is at least for now in the weird pandemic world that we live in covid19 world <laughs> Considered essential because they print newspapers as well. So they will actually be now, obviously, we wouldn't be getting the book to them to be printed until probably May or, or June, um, mm -hmm. depending on how quickly art comes back. But if things are still going on at that point, they should still be able to produce the books and, and get them out. Um, so go check that out. And uh, we'll have 
um, on our blog and at the campaign itself. We'll be offering teasers and other stuff about that. So, yeah. Uh, and and maybe if people back when the so <laughs> when so when when if any backers who back the campaign when it ends will get the pre-release PDF copy so they will immediately have access to the full text of the book to start reading and um, working through enjoying and enjoying. <laughs> and it's possible that maybe once this campaign is wrapped, we can start talking a bit more about a certain super secret project. Perhaps. Perhaps. So a quick summation. Kickstarter is the cheapest way to get the other books you may have missed out on. Mm-hmm. And the PDF it will be out in your hot little hands before anything else. And thirdly, I just want to know, I just want to let everybody else know that now this this gaming book has been deemed essential printing <laughs> out the world. There you are. So that's my sales pitch. There you go. <laughs> so anyway, we're we're really excited to get this book on its way. And obviously, you know, we under oh, one of the other things actually that I do want to mention with regards to that, and this is talked about in the in the campaign info itself at Kickstarter once it goes live. Or which you will see if you go and look. We decided in the midst of all of the coronavirus pandemic weirdness that's going on, um, that, uh, this is going to be a, a more stripped down and basic campaign. Um, we are not offering a whole bunch of stretch goals or fancy add ons or anything like that, mainly because we understand there are a lot of people who are in perhaps uncertain economic situation as a result of I this. I are one of them. And yeah, I've been furloughed. Yeah, and and we don't want to ask our awesome fans to f – we don't want them to feel like they need to throw scads and scads of money at us uh, in order to, like, meet these stretch goals and whatnot. We have ideas for stretch goals and such, but we've decided to kind of push them off to later campaigns, getting a sense for what's going on. So, you know, that's that's why you might go and look and say, hey – like why what what's up with add-ons and, and stretch goals and stuff like that well it's basically we're trying to trying to keep this simple for to, to make life easier because because the world is weird right now yeah uh, even though i've been furloughed i will be backing this because i am a completist and i will have everything we do there so, we go on to that uh we've actually got an email and i'm going to read the funny part of the email because it's a two-parter it, it is Josh it is allowed me it is to a, it do is this in a email. very funny voice. So, Brandon, I'm going to absolutely butcher the voice you have in your head for your character because your character wrote into us. So, uh, greetings, humans. I am Kogorsi, the orc, sword, no, giant two-headed axe master of a bunch of circles. I have arisen from a more than a two-decade-long retirement to return to adventuring. I enjoy listening to your show and have hired a soft, fleshy human scribe to transact correspondence with you. My questions are thus... Will you ever have a show about orcs in Carafad? To an orc such as myself, there is more to life than living in a cave like a dwarf or floating around on a big river. Also, your show needs more talk of very large axes! You mentioned to ask if we had any questions regarding patterns. Alas, I have none, but do hope for my own sake you are talking magical patterns and not which patterns might be fashionable in dwarven or to scrang fashion circles this season. Also not a question, but I thought I would add a few words ending in Cal for Dan's benefit. Feel free to use them in the show. Fumaturgical! I think it means something about how a magic person wiggles their fingers to do magical stuff. But what do I know? Surgical! In this instance, it refers to the orc version of surgery, which usually involves dismemberment by giant two-headed axe! I really thought I had more questions but must have forgotten them during the headaches I must endure in resisting Gahad when people talk too much about Tuskrang and dwarves while not talking so much about orcs. 
Finally, I leave you with a tongue-in-cheek poem I wrote myself before my scribe leaves you with a few questions of his own, as, of course, it was a condition of his services. Terskrang, like a hairless elf, but with a prehensile tail, to wield more girl swords. Bravo. That was the fun part. Bravo. <laughs> so, I'm sorry, Brandon. Uh, you said it to us, therefore I got to have fun with it. <laughs> I hope you did, too. I hope everybody did, too. So... Comments on my performance, knock yourself out. Uh, but Brandon's been gone for RPGs for about 25 years, so he's welcome back by all means. Welcome back to the fourth edition for Earth Dawn. We're glad to have you. He's got three or four questions. First one is, he knows it's been alluded to before, but will there be more FASA scenarios made for people to use, uh, for game masters especially to use? Yes. <laughs> okay, part two um, of the question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, could you say what kind of timeline the Legend series is on and like how many are planned or how often the release schedule is or would be or. Okay. So there are a total of in, in the, what we're kind of deeming as the first saga of the Legends of Bar Save thing, a total of 16 adventures kind of sketched out. We have oh, cool. released in PDF one through Six. I don't believe seven is actually out in PDF yet. It I might be. Right. I I don't I don't recall. I remember six or eight, but I only it's an even number. Yeah, so. but but like so to get back briefly to the Kickstarter, the kick one of the tiers in the Kickstarter does allow you to get through up through eight because over the course of the next couple of days, I'm going to be finishing up the the layout on chapter eight, um, which will. Uh, then be up and available in PDF and also in print. We're going to have all of those available in print as well. The ultimate goal is to try and release one of those per quarter. So, so, so for, for a year, year, which means that we're looking at probably having the full campaign done like a year and a half from now. That's assuming ideal mm -hmm. production schedules and stuff like that. So that's, that's kind of the plan on that 16, 16 chapters. Although the first, like with, with eight coming out, that kind of ends the break of act one of the saga. And then we'll get into the next batch. Fair. As far as other scenarios. Yes. Maybe I know that I've got three or four scenarios that I've written up for convention games that that i've done at gen con and places like that in the past that just exist as outlines basically and and bullet point notes for me to, to run from and i would like to get some of them mm -hmm. more fully fleshed out for for release you know so yes we would like to see more there's a a tough balance there we kind of talked a little bit in a previous show about did we talk about adventure? Like you had mentioned how you always like run your own adventures or you run out of the, the, the pre-published stuff. Yeah. Anything that's ever been pre-published, I've run pretty much. Well, the most of them. General thing is, is that adventures don't tend to sell as well as people who buy adventures might think. The amount of the amount, let me put it this way. The, the amount of effort <laughs> that goes into making them. In terms of the price point and how many end up selling, like basically the choice comes down, do we put the effort into 
a source book like Iopos or Mystic Paths or something like that, or put it into mm-hmm. adventures. Now, we might be able in the- potentially to do like three adventures and and I'm not talking about the legend stuff, that's its own thing, but like three adventures in the span of a of like one or two regular source books, but the like the pricing thing it's 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 rough. I would like to see more. I think adventures, even if people don't necessarily run them as they are, um, can serve as a valuable source for ideas and a template for what we expect an adventure to look like. You know, and I especially like to yeah. see, I would really like to see my, um, feuding orc family romantic comedy out in print because it is a, it is a sort of socially based adventure. Um, and, and kind of a bit atypical. And I think it's cool in that regard. And sounds hilarious. It, it is. It's, it's, it's fantastic. That one does require a little <laughs> bit more work in terms of writing it up because there's a lot of like, um, role playing advice and whatnot. Um, I've got the, the 30th anniversary adventure that I did for Gen Con a couple of, of years ago that I want to get polished up and released. Like this, this, yeah, there, there are plans. It's just a matter of finding the, the time and energy to do them. Yeah, fair enough. And not that any of the other already published adventures over the past 25 years, 30 years aren't out there. So there's some on the Fossil Games website. There's some you can go look at on probably eBay. Uh, I know our drive-thru RPG might have a couple as well. I actually left a review for one. So all of the previous published material, um, not only in from the original runs of stuff, but also, um, all of the back issues of the Earth Dawn Journal, which has a few adventures in it are all, uh, yeah, are all available. The, the like shards and stuff that were done for third edition. Um, those are yep. all available in PDF, both through the Facet Game site and through Drive Through RPG. So there is plenty yeah. of stuff out there. The only thing is, is that the older material, um, you would kind of need to use as a plot outline and rework numbers in some respects. Yeah, that's about it. So yeah, different stats, new st- newer stats for the creatures, and just go along with the fourth edition rules, and you're fine, and yeah. you're all good. So there's, you keep ninety percent of it. That's still ninety percent effort out of your way. Yeah. So. You're good to go there because he does say he has returned to tabletop from a time capsule and he's now wondering, does everyone on – does everyone use PDFs nowadays? He doesn't no. have a tablet laptop worthy of running PDFs. I thought PDFs were like really small file size. Relatively speaking, yeah. Um, it's just Fair. if you – you know, P- PDFs can be really handy if you've got a, a tablet yeah, or, or something like and- that. Any uh, any current computer, at least Windows Vista, I think even can run. PDFs. Yeah, no, I mean P- PDFs. Uh, <laughs> you know, PDFs is a is a as long as the PDF is put together correctly, so it doesn't suffer from ridiculous file bloat, which I have made the mistake of doing a couple of times when making PDFs. <laughs> Whoops! But yeah, I mean, you should be able to to do them okay. The the thing that I like physical books. I am the same. But I also like PDFs because it's very easy for me to bring the PDF up in the screen. And like if I'm looking for something while doing research on a book or whatever to just like you can search the PDF to find what you're looking for pretty fast, pretty easily and faster. Yeah, I I I do the same. I I do the exact same thing as I have my PDFs on my tablet um, on a little microchip. Actually, I insert in my tablet and that's the same thing I do with it is if I'm going over to somebody else's house to play, I can bring six or eight books on the, right. on the tablet and not carry all that weight yeah. and not mess up my books because occasionally I hit a bump of the road and covers will get uh, bent and I hate that. Yeah. So that's just me. You know, so I, 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 I 
absolutely understand people like preferring physical books. Um, we are still doing physical books and, and they are available, but PDFs, especially like if you're coming back to gaming after like from the previous century, <laughs> then yeah, the, the rise of electronic books of PDFs is new, but it has in many ways like really reshaped the industry. And it actually allows a lot of like indie producers and small like one man studios and whatnot to put together stuff and put it out without needing yes. to worry about like warehousing and managing physical product and stuff like that. You create a PDF and you can put it up on drive through RPG and even have them do like print on demand stuff for it. If people do want to prefer for mm -hmm. a physical copy. So no, the, the digital revolution yeah. um, has done really interesting things for uh, the tabletop game industry. Um, for RPGs, at least. And so, no, it's it's really cool. A lot of people like, you know, a lot of people like them. A lot of people don't. They have advantages and disadvantages. Um, but yeah, no, they're, they, you will, you will find yeah. them now. Yeah. I still take a good old fashioned uh, office highlighter, blue, green, yellow, take your pick and highlight the pages, important sentences, just so if I flip through the book, I can find it. I can't do that on PDF as well as easily. So yeah, it's, you need to have the the, the you need to have the right me. stuff to to do that in in PDF. Yeah, I'm not paying for that software. So. <laughs> One of those things. Otherwise, uh, so today's topics we're going to cover uh, just a little bit on. Just because he asked the question, we're going to lead into that. So thank you, Brandon. Thank you for the email. Thank you for letting me absolutely butcher uh, the voice <laughs> inside your head for Kogorsi. We're going to talk about a little bit on campaign planning, story hooks, and probably the first adventure and how to put that together because Josh alluded to it. He's run adventures and campaigns, and I have done mostly PDF, mostly pre-generated adventures mm -hmm. for everyone to run with. So first question, outside of a convention – how long should somebody's first adventure be in Earthdawn? How many sessions or high points to get to or legend awards or things like that? So what's your recommendation? It depends. <laughs> I think that if you are dealing with people who – like if you're dealing with your regular gaming group, right? Like you're playing – other games, like you play D&D &D or various World of Darkness games or whatever, and you're trying something new and you're yeah. trying Earth Dawn, doing your initial adventure to perhaps be like two or three sessions is probably a, a good thing. Because my one yeah. issue with convention demos is that it is a very limited block of time. Basically, you have like four, like, like four hours typically is what four is what a, a yeah, convention yeah. RPG session is. And generally, especially where with a game like Earth Dawn, you typically have people who are new to the system. And so you got to spend the first 30 minutes like people are settling in. You've got to kind of like brief them on how the rules work and, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You know, for, you know, it gets to the point now, like at Gen Con, a lot of times I'll have people that come back to play in my games again and again. And so I will know them. And know that they're up on yes. it, but we will almost always have like a couple of new players, which is awesome every time. But that totally. means that you've got Love to it. like kind of give them the, the really high concept setting description and cover the basics and kind of run through like the character sheet and say, okay, here's what the various things mean and go from there. So that means mm -hmm. that, you know, you've got a four hour block, but you've got the settling in time and the briefing and whatnot. And you want to make sure that you're not going to be running over. Because people have other games and yes. stuff that they need to get to. So generally, you're really maybe looking at only three hours of play, which means you're really looking for a kind of 
focused, like a focused, like specific goal, like a lot more linear and directed story than you would in maybe a a traditional game where players might have Mm -hmm. a bit more freedom to wander around or take sidebars or whatever. So a convention play is point A to point B, maybe point Point A to point B to point C (laughs) to point D. Yeah. Like I, I generally will have like, there's the initial scene where they kind of get introduced to the job. I will generally have like a fairly basic, simple combat encounter really early on to give everybody Mm -hmm. a chance to like roll some dice and and get a feel for what's going on. The system then see how the system works. And then I'll have a scene or two that tends to be more investigate. I mean, it depends on the particular story I'm running, but that will be like investigative or will have stuff that will allow the non-combat aspects of the characters to maybe come into play, whether that's Mm -hmm. social interactions or whatever. And then typically there will be like some kind of climactic fight or other at the end yeah to to kind of wrap things up so with a so if you're but if you're playing at home with your normal group or some newer people or whatever you can maybe like expand on on that a little bit um and go into a bit more depth and maybe do like Mm -hmm. two or three sessions of, of three to four hours each depending on on what people's things are you still probably will yeah. Typically want to go with Tell something them. as yeah. your first adventure. If you're, if you're new to Earthdawn, you've got players that are new to Earthdawn to be a bit more focused and specific goal oriented because mm-hmm. when you don't know much about the setting, it can be a little bit floundering. You can flounder around in terms of not knowing what you can do and, and stuff like that. Um, that's part of the reason why the, um, the, the Legends of Barsave yeah. adventures are kind of designed the way that they are. One, each of them is kind of written to be, a single session, like they're they're conceived as the, the convention scenarios that these that uh, Kyle mm-hmm. and Michael and Carl run at at conventions. Yeah, um, but they can very easily be because they end up with recurring NPCs and stuff because they're all kind of set in and around the same place. Those can very easily be expanded by a home campaign or have other like sidebars that go in and get set up in the same place as well to kind of flesh that out. That's so I, I would say like for your first adventure, if you're just starting out, if you're newer then maybe having a more GM-focused, GM-dictated sort of plots to follow might be a little bit easier to to keep people from floundering. If you are starting a new campaign, but you've got experienced people, then that kind of goes out the window. And at that point, you really want your initial session or two to be that session zero negotiation. Well, what do we want the game to be about? Where are we going to set it? What kind of characters do people want to do? And have that back and forth where the player's being familiar with the setting are able to perhaps yeah. be a little uh, offer a bit more creative input into the shape that the campaign's going to take. Fair. Yeah. Uh, if you needed a good example, and I actually left a review of this on drive through RPG many, many years ago, way before the podcast, I found in the earth Dawn journal number two, David Carolea, I hope you're pronouncing your last name properly, uh, wrote an adventure called The Search for Wisdom. And it later got turned into a shard for third edition um, called Runevir's Tomb. Called Runevir's yes. Tomb. And I have run yep. – You've talked – we talked about I this on the show in the past. I have run that adventure I think five times now because <laughs> it is one of the yeah, perfect it's, examples. It's a, it's, a, it's a solid of little adventure. To, of uh, introductory adventure. Um, that's a good one. If you can so. track down the original – the original first edition demo packets. Yeah. The adventure in there is like really, really kind of like simple and straightforward. Incredibly, but it works. But yeah, so, so there's, that's, that's the one with, um, Farless's dagger, um, kind of first appeared in there. And the, 
uh, 30th anniversary adventure basically mm-hmm. is a sequel to that. Um, it's actually 25th anniversary, whatever it is, the, the, the anniversary adventure I did a couple nice. years ago. Oh, Targ Bone Slicer. Nice. But then, yeah, there are other, uh, like one shots and shards and things like that that are, that are around that can definitely, definitely serve. And if all else fails, as Josh has always said, yeah, borrow and steal. If you've got a novel or a movie, a plot <laughs> that you want, translate that to Earthon if you have the time and the energy and resources to do so. My only other recommendation, seriously, is for your first adventure, if it's a brand new party, all new players to Earthon, they've played, maybe played other games before, but they haven't played Earthon yet, is total up the points you're planning on handing out, session awards, creatures, treasure, all that fun stuff, and don't let them circle up too fast, as in they'll go from first and just blaze all the way mm-hmm. through to third or fourth. Try and keep it like first first to second. Let them get used to what they can do at second before they get any more points, and then run something else and get them enough points to get to third. And then just kind of make, make sure they go one circle yeah. at a time. One, one of the advantages of the skill-based circle advancement of Earth Dawn. It really allows players who are newer to the system to not get overwhelmed too much by, by what's, what their characters can do. You start off with five or six, um, abilities and most of them at first circle tend to be fairly straightforward. And then as you advance in circle, you mm-hmm. get more and more kind of added on a little bit at a, at a time. And even spells, same thing. You don't get a whole lot. Yeah, and, and with spells and, and things like that. So so there definitely is a, a nice learning curve in that regard. And yeah, you can like advance through the first couple of circles pretty quickly if you know what you're what you're doing. Yeah. So try and aim for like the fifteen hundred point range, because really I think on twelve hundred or thirteen hundred is all you need to get to from first to second circle, right? Anymore? Uh, first, first, if you if you are really focused on just advancing to circle, you can actually, depending on how you build your character, you can advance from first to second with like three hundred legend points. If you take your eight starting talent points and you take four talents at rank two, and then you take your fifth talent, rank one is one hundred, rank two is two hundred. There's your five talents at rank two that qualify you for second circle. Yeah. So it's possible to to qualify with as little as 300 legend points. Now, of course, then at that point, you're not spending any legend on advancing an attribute. That's no longer tied to circle the way that it was in, mm-hmm. in earlier in first edition where it was. Generally, you would end up with like around a thousand or so if somebody really wanted to bump up an attribute when they advanced. Yeah. Um, they would save the points to do that. But yeah, I mean, it's it is possible to like advance those first couple of circles really, really quickly if you mm-hmm. are focused on on doing it. The other thing that I would say, aside from the the mechanics of looking at advancement, because it's certainly possible that you might just be trying out Earth Dawn as a interlude or like mini series in between whatever of your of your regular gaming, mm-hmm. um, in which case you're not going to be delving too much into the like long-term campaign aspects of earth dawn like the exploration of thread items and stuff like that yeah if you are introducing people whether the entire group is new or you've got new players um and this is one of the things that i try and do with the convention scenarios that i come up with is try and incorporate into those initial adventures if you're coming up with your own those initial sessions to highlight some of the things that are special and unique about Earth Dawn, mm-hmm. especially if you've got people who are coming from a Dungeons and Dragons background, d- highlighting the things that are different compared to D&D. By different, he means better. Well, 
Um, I mean, you're not wrong, but the but I'll sell it to, hard. To highlight, Josh will soft sell it. <laughs> but trying to highlight those differences is a, I think, something that that's really cool in a way of getting people kind of hooked on it. Um, it's not quite as easy to do these days as it was, although with masks you can do it easily enough. Like the classic D&D player coming to Earth Dawn and facing a cadaver man for the first time, right? They kind of like, yes. oh, well, I'm like a low-powered character, and I'm going up basically against something that looks like a zombie, and then they hit it hard and it goes bananas on them. That is always a remarkable, memorable moment. I, I love dropping cadaver men on new players uh, in my games whenever I was introducing them. I did that three days ago. Because they would do... Yeah, because because they do <laughs> they do different things, and while the cadaver man, as presented in the GM's guide in Fourth Edition, is a little bit tough for first circle characters, mm-hmm. uh, you you can you know modify the numbers down or or something like that. But yeah, just hi- trying to highlight the special things, you know, dealing maybe introducing um, the passions or, or you know something like that, or the horrors in some respects, although. You know, you're you're probably as an introductory thing not going to be dealing with really powerful horrors, but maybe just some kind of like nasty, gribbly monster thing that um, is uh, is causing problems in an area, yeah. or at least will freak him out to look at. So, just, yeah. oh, that thing, yeah, that's not anything they were expecting. No, the cadaverman I threw at somebody on Sunday, uh, second session ever, first cadaverman at Earth on D and D player for many years. <laughs> um, yeah, they were like, oh, okay, I can just outrun this thing. No. Look at the movement rate. This this is the fast-moving zombie, air quotes, that will catch you. And then did enough damage to wound it, and that was the four attacks per turn. Oh, yeah! I just sat there and just raked him. I'm like, oh, okay. So they had a nice little shock of, oh, this is not what I – yeah, this is not what you expected. Here we are. <laughs> so uh, I coincidentally today read an article um, in Knights at the Dinner Table magazine. Not to plug them, but they do have some wonderful gaming resources every once in a while. And they had about nine different places you can get one night stand or two night stand, two, one session or two session gaming adventures for game masters mm-hmm. to kind of create. And they basically just said, you know, go to Board Game Geek, go to Reddit uh, for low prep, quick to learn, uh, one shot RPGs, go to Sky Flourish, go to the Angry GM, Myth Creants, M Y T H Creants, uh, Gnome Stew, RPG Alchemy. Plenty of places you can go find some things to help you write your first adventure or a quick little one shot, two shot thing out there. So for campaign planning, I figure that's not a bad resource either to toss out for everybody just yeah. to help out where they want to go. So that's the first adventure. How long should a regular campaign be? When's the last time you ran a long, long, long campaign? Last long, long campaign I ran was was uh, a while ago. Um, we ended up wrapping that up around the time that my older daughter was born. Fair. Um, just because of... Logistics of that. Babies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> babies time and suck. toddlers and, and so forth. Um, yes. and, she, and she turns actually 13 on Friday. So, no, like, in terms of like an actual, honest-to-goodness, long-term campaign, uh, it's probably been a good 10 years, give or take, Fair. Um, since, I've, since I've done that. Yeah. How how long should it take, sort of being the question, as long as it needs to? As long as you can keep them interested, I think, is the thing. Yeah. I the table and go, why are we here again? Maybe <laughs> wrap it up a little quicker. Yeah. 
largely like the the games that I've had tend to wrap up and kind of rather than ending on a satisfying conclusion have tended to kind of like fade out through a combination of life changes and burnout and things like that as long as it needs to be I, I you know I mean you can run a really long-term game of, of Earth Dawn there is certainly the ability to do so in terms of not just like the time it takes to advance and stuff like that I yeah I, I ran the entire par length boxed set of adventures and mm-hmm. some little tiny things in between and that took me we played weekly almost there were some times we didn't actually play but we played weekly so i'd say we played 40 or 45 times that year and that ran through the whole box set so yeah it took me a year to run through that four i mean long ish adventures you know that that's one of those things that maybe again would come up in the sort of discussions at the beginning at, at the planning and those session zero times um where you're getting a sense of okay do we want to do a like more focused story do we want something that's going to be kind of maybe sandboxy and open-ended and and stuff like that certainly the advantage of a long-term campaign especially in earth dawn is is twofold one is you really get the opportunity to explore um and take advantage of the the long-term stuff and and downtime activities relating to thread items and things like that and also earth dawn is bar save is a in some respects, a living setting, and you have the opportunity to have the players involved as they are erstwhile legends, and as they grow in power and become more and more movers and shakers in mm-hmm. the setting, they can affect change, which always kind of makes things difficult from a uh, game designer <laughs> developer standpoint, um, because uh, you know, as as people have their own campaigns, they kind of maybe diverge from what we had in mind, but uh, that that's cool. Yeah, fair. You know, I, I think a year or two, you know, if you're meeting weekly or every other week or something like that. I mean, I, the, the, the I'm not running it, but the legends, the, um, the legends of Earth Dawn podcast game that I'm involved with has now yes. been going on for a couple of years. We only meet monthly. So like we, you know, we don't get to play as much as I think anybody would actually like, but scheduling. <laughs> like <laughs> scheduling sessions for 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 busy adults is difficult when you've got everybody in the same city when you've got people across multiple time zones and states all of that sort of thing it, gets, <laughs> it can get a little bit uh, a little bit rough yeah fair okay so we are halfway through our show should we talk patterns since we didn't get any questions or do you just want to move on to humans let's just move on to humans i and and before we dive into that if anybody has like, again, like with anything that we discuss here, if you have particular questions or advice or anything like that, that you want to toss our way, feel free to, to drop us a line. We love specifics. Yeah. Once again, EDSG podcast at gmail.com. But we <laughs> gmail. love specifics. If you have specifics about, Hey, I did this with the spell or this pattern didn't quite yet. Yeah, throw those at us. We can answer those yeah. questions. Primarily Josh. Yeah. You know, I, I, there's, there's, a bunch of stuff that I could go into with regards to magic items, thread items in a campaign, but I think maybe we'll save that for an episode where we're focused on magic items specifically. Sounds like it. So, uh, Brandon, to your dismay, we are not talking orcs today. We will be talking humans. Soft, fleshy, pink-skinned humans. Uh, kidding. 
I love the fact that in Earth Dawn, you have all these special races, the windlings and the dwarves and the obsidian and the trolls and the orcs, and it's Descrang, especially. We covered Descrang in loving, loving detail. But it's not like they just cast humans inside and said, eh, they're ordinary, ignore them. No, the humans get one thing nobody else gets, which makes them just as viable as the other seven name giver races, uh, which is versatility. Yes. And that I find is the equalizer where initially I'm picking up the game. I'm like, ah, yeah, humans. I don't want to play humans. I play enough humans in every other game are out there. But this is the one that would make me want to play a human again because they get something nobody else gets. And so that makes them unique among the other otherwise unique races. So, yeah. Yeah. The the humans, the, the racial talent of versatility is interesting. Um, certainly at the time that, that Earthdawn originally came out back in the early 90s, you you often see in fantasy games and sci-fi games and stuff like that 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 have humans um that they are typically the the dominant or most numerous race Star and Wars. things are sort of yeah and and things are sort of talked about them in regards to why they might have gotten to that position of power or that presence within the setting without much in the way of mechanical reinforcement of that perhaps but the 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 versatility talent basically one it well i mean basically it just gives humans the ability to rather than needing to follow an entirely new discipline it allows them to pick up the odd talent or two that they might find useful in the course of their adventuring career now versatility does pose potential balance problems Mm-hmm. Um, both from a, from an, uh, uh, in a, in a sort of actual like gameplay situation as well as from a developer standpoint. I think I've mentioned this before. Yes. When we're coming up with new talents. Like we need to consider how it might interact with every other talent that's out there because somebody might pull it up, grab it under versatility. Yes. And put together combinations. It does make for the everything a thon. <laughs> yeah. Now, Versatility does does have some downsides, and there have been some things that have kind of tried to control its impact, but it is certainly possible for a, a dedicated person to kind of potentially break things with, with versatility if they are dedicated and interested in doing so, mm-hmm. um, especially if they can run roughshod over a GM uh, to, to get what they want. Yeah, this is – so I, I, I reread the, the Denizens of Earth on Volume 1 – section on humans yesterday just to prep for the show because again i got furloughed i had time but the i forgot this part and i that's why i go back and reread things the essay that was written is that the claim by humans is that they um, were the only race many thousands of years ago and then magic happened again and then that splintered off and we got to scrang and orcs and trolls and everything else so all of the other races are born from human that's why humans have versatility is because they essentially are linked have, to all those They other have races. within them the potential yes. for everything else. So long before cultural appropriation happened, humans had versatility. <laughs> or at least mechanical appropriation. How's that? But otherwise, for human culture, because we've talked about the Tuscan culture, talked about dwarven culture and so forth. In Earth Dawn, back in 1993, they still had the – Equality among the sexes for uh, males and females being in charge of things, taking care of the household, mm-hmm. other jobs, adventuring, all that fun stuff. But there is an underlying insecurity and jealousy, unconscious, 
unconscious jealousy and unconscious insecurity for the humans. So they're always trying to prove that they're better than whatever race happens to be around them at the time. So it's yeah. just <laughs> – there, There is not a dominant human culture the way that no. there is sort of with dwarves or with Descrang, which we've talked about before. Humans will typically take on the aspects of whatever culture that they are sort of a, a, a part of, which would be primarily Throlic unless there is a reason otherwise. Like humans who might live in what is otherwise a, a an elf village might be more sort of elven in their outlook that you know it's not there are not monocultures there are some some subgroups of tribal group heritage groups of humans that have yeah. sort of backgrounds and stuff that are that go along with that six to be exact yes yeah <laughs> you've got the uh the dingani tribesmen who mm-hmm. are your sort of um nomadic plains sort of wilderness types um they they kind of strike me a little bit perhaps as as borrowing a little bit from American First Nations, but without that like really blatant aspect, maybe with yeah. a little bit of the um of the 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 Rangers of the North from Lord of the Rings kind yeah. of flavor to them that they feel like very kind of like Ranger wilderness nomadic people. Maybe maybe with a little bit of um I, I forget whether because I did not read the book ahead of time Fair because I work course. in the healthcare industry and <laughs> therefore you are busy. I have been busy. That um, I'm not sure whether there's anything in there about the relationship between the Dingani and the Orc Nomads, uh, whether that is something – but that could be an interesting aspect to explore if you're going to have that group in your game. Absolutely. Absolutely. Whether – like do the Dingani perhaps borrow or, or have some they're some very- things in common with, with Orc culture because they're both sort of nomadic folk in that regard? Or is there yeah. a rivalry because they would be like competing for resources? Like there's there's those kind of potential aspects that you can involve. Yeah, because the Dingani have five laws and they primarily uh, migrate between the, the between Kratos in the center of the map almost in the mist swamps down near the southern part. So they just kind of go north and right. south. Uh, they're very tall, very muscular. They're very orc-like as far as their appearance is concerned. But they do mm-hmm. have a, a set of laws because they lived in a care didn't like it and they don't want to ever be in tied down or or yeah tied down or in within walls ever again so that's just one of the six that they've got then there's the cathans remember the cathans right yes the the um tribesmen in the the jungle yes i'm um, in the servos jungle yeah uh, very they olive skin, are mostly hairless uh, yeah they are they are more for lack of a for lack of a better term more more primitive um than the the dominant sort of culture and whatnot um, they actually did not uh, take the, the – protect themselves with the Theron rites. They used their own magics and kind of hid in tunnels underneath the jungle mm-hmm. and and survived that way. But they are a more primitive – and I, I'm not crazy about that word, but I'm thinking of, of like maybe sort of like Amazon jungle tribes kind of – Yeah. No, that's a good – Stuff like a- that. Perfect way to put it. Uh, I, the, the, I think the phrase that stuck out with me yesterday was they emerged from uh, after the scourge like nothing had ever happened and went right back to yeah. being who they were. <laughs> right back in the jungle. Um, very, very, in, very in tune with nature and their environment. Beastmasters are, you know, very common among them. Um, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, then there's the Galeb Kleck. They're, they're sort of generic I, I feel like they're kind of generic humans in some respects. They are because the Galeb was one tribe, the Klek was another tribe, and then they interbred. And they just kind of interbred and <laughs> there's not really any strong – like I, I didn't – you know, unlike the Dingani or the, the Cathan tribes of the Servos, 
the the Gallup Clek don't have like it's more of a hey here's a story of how there were two different tribes and they kind of <laughs> blended together and that's fine and there's no real strong like cultural signifier or thing that kind of ties to them as a unique group I agree and and so it's like yeah these are the humans from this area and like they have kind of this I, history I, and and they're they're I think humans they had a word I think they had a word count to fill and that was part of it. <laughs> That's just me, and I can say that twenty-five years after the fact. Then you get the other, th- the last three: uh, the Riders of the Scorched Plains. They're just thieves and road bandits, humans. That's pretty much what they do. Yeah, there's no um, again, no culture there. Uh, there either. They're not quite like the troll Sky Raiders, which do it for honor and for their own sense of, well, the strong need to prove that they're strong, and if you can defend yourself, you're strong, and we'll leave you alone. They're basically they're scorchers, but they're human. Yeah. So basically, again, I think they had space to fill in the essay. Uh, <laughs> then there's the Scavians. The they are the barge men, the barge riders. The um, their their ancestral home was in near the mist swamps and was lost, and now they are kind of a nomadic, but aquatically nomadic, and they yeah. don't get along with the Tuscrang. No. They really don't, and they also hang out somewhere in the Scarlet Sea. Mostly about them is they all have long hair, they all wear scars, and they love jewelry. So that was the the main thing I got. From yeah, them. there's there's a there's a little bit of a um, uh, Romani vibe to them mm-hmm. um, in, in the sense of them being like sort of sort of nomads and having that aspect and avoiding a lot of the common tropes of that cultural group is used in RPGs. Um, yeah. I think they take enough to get that impression, but avoid a lot of the damaging stereotypes that go along with that. Fair. Uh, and then, of course, there's the Vorst. There's the Vorst. Uh, the Vorst yeah. are the other ones that, I mean, the, the Scavian bargemen have a kind of strong thing with their aquatic aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Vorst are, these are the people descended from a particular care, and their care got breached, but they survived. Like, they basically turtled up and fought back and survived and and that had a very strong influence on their cultural development (laughs) and the way they still are now you know decades later after their their care having they leave nothing to chance and no they they have a scorched earth policy essentially yeah they 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 have they have (laughs) they are very stoic and have little sense of humor and are yeah like (laughs) i i want to say like kind of like doomsday prepper attitude yeah. about them um no, is that they they kind of deal with that so um yeah these are these are all little little subgroups and certainly within the you know within that you can come up with your own i mean the the chapter doesn't even talk about landis at all which was a primarily human kingdom i agree with you uh, yeah because the records of landis all detailed the six different i can't say versions of humans but six different slightly as you said uh subcultures that can be found throughout bar save but it doesn't really mention humans as a whole right there's no yeah there's there's no there's no monoculture um and i think the humans the humans are are a really good example of what you can do to make different groups distinct Mm -hmm. and and special and you don't necessarily need to deal with all of them but it it does allow the possibility of somebody who might want to play a human to bring in some uh, role-playing aspects in terms of how they might want to be as a as a character because humans are are quite often as as you mentioned viewed as kind of like bland and boring and middle of the road and not only yeah. that 
you know, not only do they have the cool versatility racial ability, mm-hmm. but here are half a dozen like different variations that each have their own like hook and idea and whatnot that totally. um, can inform your your play and development of the character. Because yeah, if you've been playing Earth as long as you and I have, which is forever, if you're looking for a challenge and you've not played a human yet, go play a human, A, and then B, go try and just do the R-O-L-E playing of any of those six that we just listed off. That or or come up or work with your GM to come up with with one of your own. Yeah, because you know if you're looking at a longer term game, that that could perhaps be one of the things that you like work out in that initial session discussion and whatnot about what's going on. And of course, you could also play a human that is from uh, an area that is dominated perhaps by Throlic culture, or maybe lives up near. The, the blood wood and has some yeah. elven influence or mm-hmm. is from a, a river village that was closely like the, one of the, the, the features of humans is their flexibility and adaptability. And, um, and so <laughs> o- outside of the examples given for those various subgroups, um, you can, you know, well, I want to play a human, yeah. but is influenced by this, this culture. Cause they maybe grew up, in a river village. And so there's a lot of like to scrang influence in that area and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I've always told people, cause when I, when they, uh, when I get them to approach earth dawn, usually willingly nine times out of 10 willingly, I, I can pick a race or pick a discipline. Cause you have to pick a discipline kind of first sometimes for your, cause mm-hmm. in the old editions, there were racial restrictions. So I said, you have to pick your discipline first, then you get to pick your race. So back that out. Now we're in fourth edition. I still am able to look at people and say, okay, if you here's because they're like, I don't want to necessarily be shoehorned into the archer's path, even though they have options. And so it's more flexible in fourth edition. I say, look, if you want to play and anything, you can put it together yourself. You can piecemeal everything you want to do, all your talents and everything else, play a human with versatility and you're done. That's it. Cause that way you get to literally pick and choose yeah. all of your talents. The, the, end of story the original get go. Yeah. And that leaves them the wide the, open. the one potential downside that you run into by going into versatility a lot and this is sort of talking about from a from a mechanic standpoint is that you're going to be going broad and not deep because it does cost you you not only have to yeah. increase your rank in versatility to pick up additional talents on that you need to raise those talents and those don't count towards your circle advancement. Yep in your discipline. And so mm-hmm. you might end up being a little bit, depending on how much you go into it, you might end up being a little bit behind your companions in terms of your advancement and maybe, you know, missing out on some, a little bit behind the curve in terms of special abilities. I, I don't think it's, it's too, too bad. Yeah. You know, but it is, it is certainly possible to make perhaps some ill-informed choices early on going into uh, a human and trying to focus on versatility. Mm-hmm. The and end up maybe not happy with where you where you are in comparison to your friends. Yeah, I I, I don't think it's yeah. I don't usually suggest it as a first character they ever make, but yeah, it's a it's an option because the this it's the human journeyman. Yeah, the the yeah. the original version of the journeyman was basically okay. You is is a completely like free form pick whatever talents you want progression kind of thing. Yeah. There could not be a blanker slate than that one. And <laughs> while it does potentially offer the some some overboard 
combinations, it doesn't support playing a caster particularly well because there's so much that involved in playing a caster um, that that you, you know, so many of your versatility slots need to be taken up by things to make you an effective caster. You might as well just play a caster, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so <laughs> the the yeah. fourth edition journeyman has been altered pretty dramatically um, in the sense that it is now a path that gets added on to your existing discipline and gives you a lot more flexibility and a lot more options with your versatility as a human. So mm-hmm. that's a little bit better. Yeah, I mean, basically, the reason that anybody would want to wanted to play a, a journeyman really was because of the morphism talent, which is a talent that that as you progress through it yeah. in first edition, basically <laughs> gave you the racial modifiers of different races at progressively more and more as your rank in it advanced to the point where a, a high circle journeyman with a high rank in morphism would have the like strength adjustment of an obsidian, the toughness adjustment of a troll, the like mm-hmm. you know perception dexterity, dexterity of an elf, of the, the elf perception willpower like that, yeah. and charisma of whatever is best, and so ending up with like yeah. it's a huge amount of work and a lot of legend points to actually get to that point, but it allows you to <laughs> like modify your stats well beyond what is otherwise possible. But the, the truly dedicated will find a way. <laughs> <laughs> the, the truly dedicated will find a way. It is st- it is still available in the Journeyman Path in in the Mystic Paths book um, because it is kind of iconic, but it's been changed a little bit in terms of of Fair. how it works. But it is still there. So coming up on an hour or so, so we should probably wrap this one up here pretty quick. We should talk stats for humans. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's nothing really to say as far as that. Yeah, I mean, the the humans have the sort of base tens across the board. The they do have a slight advantage on karma. Um, that they've got the um, the karma modifier wow, of five. So they do end up with a little bit more karma compared to uh, dwarves and elves. They get the same karma modifier as orcs. Um, they don't get the uh, physical bonuses that orcs get, but they also don't get the penalties that orcs get as well. So there's that like average across the board. Second, second best karma in the game, you know, basically behind only windlings yeah. and equal with orcs. So um, the, the humans do actually get a little bit of a advantage um, in that regard. And of course, if you are really looking to uh, kind of go crazy, a human magician, a, a spellcaster picking up thread weaving of other magician disciplines mm-hmm. under versatility does allow you to cast spells from multiple disciplines without needing to go to all the bother of learning <laughs> another discipline. It is it is not as broken as mm-hmm. you might think, because while you do have a lot, potentially have a lot more spells that you can cast in combat, you are still limited by your number of yeah. spell matrices. Uh, and so you still only you only have a certain amount available at a time. But no, humans are humans are decent. There's nothing super remarkable about them in the setting the way that there are perhaps with the dwarves or the Tuscrang or, you know, others that we will talk about or the windlings, um, others that we will talk about in the future. But the human human characters can be a very solid choice if there is nothing specific, like if there is no particular reason that you feel called Mm -hmm. to another race, picking up a human, you might not be able to start quite as high as a character of a different name, give a race that mm-hmm. is more focused, you know, unless you're looking at a real 
like trying to maximize your like physical combat prowess compared to say like a troll yeah. or an obsidian or even uh, an orc human doesn't actually end up that far behind other name givers particularly uh in in that regard so yeah it's worth it's worth looking into good yeah. um good good karma and the versatility to versatility can be really handy especially if you've got a smaller yes. group um to pick up the odd talent or two to fill in gaps that might not be covered by the disciplines that your companions follow. And it's not fair to name him Jack because he would be a jack of all trades. That's just not fair. <laughs> Sorry, bad joke. So yeah, I mean, you know, give give humans a try. Um if you haven't already. If if you haven't already, uh they are a they're a decent uh they are a, a decent choice um for, for many things. And while not as culturally iconic within the setting the way some others are um their versatility and whatnot make them a, a pretty solid choice for just about anything yeah I, I i can't see anything wrong with playing a human it's for me it's never been my first choice but it will be a choice eventually so i i played a i played a i played a human warrior in one game who uh like part of his his story was that he grew up on the tales of his uncle who was like a mercenary swordsman or whatever yeah. and was all like in love with the 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 um romantic ideal of the wandering hero um and then sort of got into his first adventure and realized that you know <laughs> adventuring is kind of a unpleasant like there's a lot of nasty stuff that the stories really don't tell you and uh, and coming yeah. to coming to terms with that so that was a, a cool little arc to yeah. to go on well and I, I i also going back to culturalism real quick i find that since the tuscrang are so flushed out as far as a culture is concerned and dwarves are very flushed out as far as a culture is concerned trolls as well mm -hmm. just about everybody is even the obsidian as low in population as they are still have a, a culture all their own and cultural assimilation humans are more of that blank slate so if you are a player who doesn't necessarily want to try and be shoehorned into a culture or even representing a culture or playing like that. Yeah. Humans are your, your blank slate. Humans, in, humans can certainly, can certainly do that. Yeah. So yeah, I, that's, that's where to go with that one. And so, um, you know, you, you, I assume that most of the people uh, listening to this are, are humans. And so therefore, you know, what? it's not much of a stretch <laughs> to, uh, you know, step, step into those shoes. <laughs> Exactly. If you're new to role-playing in general, start with a human. In Earth Dawn, at least. So, go from there. Yeah, because they're they're pretty much uh, – it's why in Star Wars, I never played a human because they're so ubiquitous and everywhere. I'm just kind of like, ugh, it's been done. Well, and in, the, and in me. many of the Star Wars games as, as my I, – I can't really address the Fantasy Flight um, Edge of Empire ones that uses the funky dice. I've played it once, but I've, nope. I've never – like looked into the details, but humans, I, I don't recall that like in the West end games version, which is the one I'm sort of familiar with, though I haven't looked at it in probably 20 years that, yeah, that there's nothing special about humans other than the fact that, Oh, they can maybe get around. They don't stand out the way that other alien species would because they're human and the empire is dominated by humans. Um, and so there's an yeah. advantage there, but there's nothing mechanically as i recall i could right. be wrong i could be wrong no I, I i play the west end games version i play the d20 version for star wars yeah there's there's nothing mechanically different about uh being a human in those games and even in earth dawn if you want to blend in with the crowd 
Dwarves are the most populous race in Earth Dawn. Orcs are second and only barely ahead of humans. So dwarves, orcs, and humans are the three most populous races in all of Earth Dawn, I think making up almost 65% of the entire Yeah, population. something along those lines. So, because it's 18 and 16, 34 plus 33. So yeah, 68%, 67%. So yeah. Humans, humans aren't necessarily, you know, humans aren't necessarily like flashy and like super iconic, but they've, they've got their good points. And I think yeah, we've so. kind of like maybe gone around and around on that a couple of times now. <laughs> hey, look, it's a horse. It's dead. We're still beating it. No. With, uh, with that, <laughs> I think we will call this one. Wrap this one up. Wrapped up. Yeah. So we've covered an email and talked about some initial some like adventure prep and adventure planning yeah. and new campaigns starting Short campaigns and yeah what first game long talk about humans stuff like that some kind of game prep a little bit and covered humans so brandon we'll get to orcs soon not as soon as you'd like but we'll, we'll get, to we'll get there eventually so, sorry about and, that and we but we, we will we will talk about carafod probably as a separate thing <laughs> at some point as well Oh, totally. Yeah. We'll do a whole section on Carafod, a whole section on Parlength and all that. It's coming, so stay tuned. Lots of lots of stuff to go over. Should be um, in the meantime, yeah. stay subscribed. If you if you wish to uh, send us correspondence, uh, you can send an email, edsgpodcast at gmail.com. What was that again? Like edsgpodcast <laughs> at gmail.com. <laughs> Subscribe if you haven't. Rate and review. If you don't mind, um, if if such is an option on the uh, podcasting platform you uh, that you use. Oh, and I will make one other suggestion. Uh, the FASA Discord channel, probably at this moment, since everybody is quarantined, at least uh, in many, many countries across the world, can probably hook you up with some players or game masters who might be in need of some downtime. Yes. Yeah, we've got uh, the, the, the FASA Discord got um, a reasonably – um, cool group of folks, um, maybe looking up for pickup games. Uh, there is a, a dice roller bot on the channel that handles the, the Earth Dawn, the fourth edition step system and has like initiative tracker and like all kind of bunch of useful, um, stuff in that. Definitely, uh, definitely check that out. And of course, check out the Kickstarter, the IOPOS layer of Absolutely. deceit kickstarter uh, which is running so. a, as of as of the release of this episode should be running now um that being basically mm -hmm. uh through through april of 2020 april of 2020 here we are in the midst of the 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 covid19 global pandemic and all pandemic. of the weirdness that that uh is <laughs> resulting from that um get a little bit of escape get yourself an, a new book you know don't obviously uh, financially hamstring yourself. The books will be available outside of the Kickstarter. Um, it's just this is basically yeah. how we get the funding to uh, finish the production finish of the book and, and get physical copies made. Other than that, folks, uh, we're done for now. We'll see you in a couple weeks or so. Otherwise, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you, Josh, for making the time. Uh, time to go make your own legend and stay healthy. Yes, please. wash your hands. <laughs> Six get, feet of get, separation. Get rid of, those, get rid of the dread iota. <laughs> Yes, and then go make your legend. Good night.